Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like owls, brown sauce, and triumph. I was particularly pleased with those three, yeah, Sam. Me too. I thought That's they were excellent. I want to do the history of brown sauce. <laughs> okay. uh, or we could do figs, wigs, and oil rigs, jigs, pigs, and gigs. I think the history of gigs would be fascinating, but that would delay us. Monstrously, as always, because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of donkeys is in fact all about A.A. Milne, Eeyore and the history of gloom, World War I and military transportation, nativities and childhood memories. It's all about cheesy Italian-American Christmas songs. It's about the architecture of medieval cities. And it's about, of course, the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem and dragons at the birth of Jesus. Did you know, somebody said this week that they'd never read any A.A. Milne before in their lives. But if they read... Uh, if they want, if they listen to it, they would only listen to it if I read the voice of Eeyore, having heard <laughs> our episode. Isn't that lovely? It was so very good. Thank you for yes. whoever said that. Um, or who knew that the history of poison is in fact all about 18th century shopkeepers, assassination attempts on Elizabeth I, Roman women and the history of bread... It's also all about Venice and powdered diamonds, weed killer and the history of horticulture. Did you know that, mm. Sam? <laughs> yeah, the powdered diamonds one, really, uh, I, I was astonished at that. Quite regularly making histories of the unexpected, I am astonished by things. And the powdered diamonds in the history of poison did astonish me. Um, ladies and gentlemen, you're probably wondering who is telling you all of these fascinating facts. Let me tell you of my fellow presenter that if history was a fantastical being, none less than Iluvatar, this man would be the most powerful of his firstborn children, the elves, making him the most powerful of the most powerful, far more so than mere men or dwarves. Yes, he is the king of the elves himself, distinguished by his near immortality. James, I think you've been in your 40s for far too long. He is... Um, of course, the Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is the immortal James Daywell. Oh, Sam, I'd li I, I think I'd quite like to be immortal. I think that would be quite... 
quite challenging, though, I imagine. Uh, you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot these episodes. Well, let's just say that if he were an elf-related historian, he'd only be the jolly old elf himself, Father Christmas from Twas the Night Before Christmas. So full of festive historical cheer is he, so generous and fearless is he in battling through all weathers, across time zones, through torrents, through blizzards, through blazes, <laughs> through snowstorms, in order to fill the stockings of the past for only good girls and boys. Yes, you've guessed it. His the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, lovely to be here again in our festive series. Um, if you haven't clocked it yet, guys, we tend to do lots of festive themes during uh, the Christmas period on Histories of the Unexpected. We're doing loads this year. Um, we started off with donkeys. We've done some, some wonderful stuff. And also back in the past, I so go back through our back catalogue where there are some really tremendous episodes in and around Christmas, which are there for you to enjoy. Today, we are doing elves or elves elves uh it's one that um james has uh come up with and i loved this one um and uh, and i learned lots of new and interesting things james i learned lots of new and interesting things all about elves and my starting point was of course uh, the popular culture of elves that we have today if you think about the film elf uh, a brilliant film, and I think I talked about that in one of our recent podcasts, which is a real Daybell family tradition. But elves crop up all over the place at the moment. Santa Claus the movie with Patch the Elf, played by a brilliant Dudley Moore. The elf on a shelf uh, that uh, my daughter had a, a friend come over for a sleepover this weekend and brought an elf on the shelf. I gather these are sort of rather sort of tricksy creatures that you put around the house and they do naughty things. Um, Elf Yourself is a brilliant app at this time of year where any, if any of you haven't done it, uh, you should do it because you can take pictures of you and your friends and then turn yourselves into dancing elves. Uh, my favourite being the hip-hop <laughs> elves that we did last year. Uh, I, I don't know whether you saw that, Sam, but I put yours in my face on hip-hop elves. I'm sure you appreciated it. <laughs> so we, there are all sorts of things we can do with the history of elves. Uh, elves yep. are supposed to be in Father Christmas's workshop, Santa's workshop, helping him beaver away and not only looking after reindeer, but also producing all of the toys. So one of the things that I'm going to be doing is have a look at some of the early history of elves. But also I made there may be a little Tolkien uh, along mm. the way. Tolkien, a big writer about elves and his friendship with C.S. Lewis while they were at uh, interwar and post-war Oxford. Um, and there's some really interesting stuff that I'm going to tell you about there. And also uh, I'm going to read um, some from David Sedaris's Santaland Diaries, uh, where he has a story or a description of himself being a Macy's store elf for the season when he was uh, younger and trying to break it through in New York as a writer. Very good. Should we start with Tolkien, James? Because I've came across some great Tolkien stuff. Well, I didn't also come across it. It was the first thing that came to mind. Oh, and uh, you t tell us about your stuff about Tolkien. Well, I mean, I I, I remember. It's quite kind of an important part in, in my history as well, my, my, my own literary history, because I vividly remember reading The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and those being the first books that contained made-up languages that I'd ever read. 
and I was entranced by it. Uh, I loved it. And you should all know that Elf- Elvish in uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings is a, a proper language that Tolkien made up. He was a, um, he was a professor of, of language studies at Oxford, uh, philology. And um, it wasn't the first language that he made up. The first language he made up, he made up when he was a kid and his mum made him throw it away because she didn't think there was going to be any use in it. So he literally had to destroy the manuscripts of the language that he made up. And perhaps he then used it again uh, when he made up Elvish. But you can could, you could hear him. There are, there are audio accounts of Tolkien talking in Elvish as well. <clears throat> But this is someone who um, he could speak uh, Middle English and he could um, read the, the Icelandic and the Nordic, one of those wonderful Eddas and poems, which I also want to talk about. So anyway, I just thought that was quite interesting, James, that he'd made up a language and it resonated with a part of my history. But another thing about Tolkien, um, as you say, he was friends with C.S. Lewis at Oxford, uh, but he... Um, uh, he, he, he served in the First World War. This is when all of this is happening. It's the early 20th century and he was inventing um, inventing the elves. Uh, I suspect he might have been thinking about it when he was on watch in the trenches. Um, he was at the Somme. He suffered very badly from trench fever and a lot of his uh, of his mates and his colleagues died in 1916. He came home. He recuperated. It was when he recuperated that he started writing a book called The Silmarillion. And if you're into your Tolkien, then that is the one. It's the one that he thought was his best. Um, uh, but the publishers uh, loved The Hobbit, published it. Uh, this is after the, this is like 1930s, The Hobbit, late 1930s it was published. Um, 37 uh, interestingly, so also at, around the time of war, 1937. And then subsequently, um, he wrote The Silmarillion, but the publishers said, not so good, can you please write another one that involves more hobbits? So he, he wrote back immediately and said he'd just started a new chapter, um, which then went on to become The Lord of the Rings. So Tolkien, an interesting one, because it makes you think about the history of making up languages. What did you think about Tolkien, Oh, that's lovely. Well, I mean, I also remember reading The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Uh, the Hobbit I read when I was quite young. I was probably about 10 and I really loved it. I found it very, very moving. And I think, like you, it was one of the first times when I was introduced to fantasy uh, fiction. Um, I found The Lord of the Rings a bit of a struggle, I must admit. I read it later in life and I had always heard that it was one of those books that one should read. So I sat down one holiday and I was away in St Ives and I made myself read about 150 pages a day. And by about day four, I just had had, had enough. I got to Tom Bombadil and I was just not particularly interested. And it was more of a chore. I think if I'd read it now, I'd probably enjoy it much more. I've loved the films. I certainly haven't read the Silmarillion, uh, which I think is quite dry. Uh, it doesn't have the sort of... In- excitement but I think one of the things it's is, like an index it's yes. a bit weird I think, I <clears> think a, a long appendices yes and I think that's a long it appendix? not only does he not only do, long, long appendix sounds like a medical complaint doesn't it <laughs> I've got a long appendix uh, definitely it's, um, I think one of the things is he doesn't just create didn't just create languages but he also created histories so in the Silmarillion, that was what he was detailing. He was detailing these sort of previous histories of the elves. And I think that's where you have his the staple of his construction of the elves. But as a, as a scholar of Middle English, he was familiar with all sorts of 
ancient medieval texts that talked about elves. And I read a brilliant book, uh, The Road to Middle-Earth, which you can buy in paperback by a scholar called Tom Shippey. Uh, it was first published in 1982, and there was a more recent film tie-in version that came out in 2005 so to tie in with the the Lord of the Rings trilogy the Peter Jackson things and this is really good because what it does is it it looks in a very academic way at the backdrop to the footnotes really to Tolkien and where he was getting his ideas from elves from and there is a there's a, a a poetic fragment from the South English uh, legendary from about 1250 that describes elves that Shippy says that you know Tolkien must have been aware of this because it's very similar to the way in which he writes about elves and often shaped like women on many secret paths men see great numbers of them dancing and sporting these are called elves, and often they come to town, and by day they are much in the woods. By night, up on the high downs, these are the wretched spirits that were taken out of heaven, and at doomsday many of them shall come to rest. And I think one of the things, the extraordinary things is, that if you have a look at the medieval literature as a, as a philologist, there are lots of contradictory traditions about the elves so if you you know that are seen in old english um, texts such as beowulf um about the poet speaks of strange ilf and orkneas uh ettens which is giants and elves and demon corpses so these are you know quite evil creatures that are there and christian sources um uh, from Icelandic, uh, disapproved of these kinds of you know, of these kinds of beings, um, but there are there are more positive uh, sort of um, descriptions of them, such as in Anglo-Saxon, a fair woman is is known as elf beautiful, as the uh, elf scene, uh, elf beautiful. Um, but there are also other legends that see the that see the the place where elves live as something as a place that is dangerous to mortals that distorts time rather like Tolkien's Lothlorien when they go there they they completely lose lose track of time and I think so I think when we're talking about uh, about elves and Tolkien's description of them he is fusing together various different classical traditions of elves and I think for them, he thinks of elves and dwarves uh, very much as allegorical figures. And I think this comes through in discussions that he had with C.S. Lewis about elves. Uh, he sent Lewis uh, a poem, and I just want to read you a few brief lines of this poem about he, which, in which he talked about elves. Great powers, they slowly roared out of themselves and looking backward... They beheld the elves that wrought upon cunning forges in the mind and light and the dark on secret looms entwined. And I think for him, seeing the world enchanted is part of seeing the world correctly. It's part of the world as mythology. So, you know, there was, 
you know, while it was mythical, there was also that it actually allowed you to study the world in a more correct way. He sees no stars who does not see them first, of living silver made that sudden burst of flame like flowers beneath an ancient song. So in other words, this sort of mythical view that he's putting forward is part of human perception and it's absolutely integral to the way in which people view life. So it's very much coming from a folklore tradition here. So there we are. I'm, I mean, I'm fascinated by uh, those kind of sort of mythical medieval elves. Uh, and, you know, Tolkien, love him or hate him, is certainly a great source for studying them, Sam. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Absolutely, and it's really interesting, the fact that if you, you, if you think about... I asked myself at the beginning, what is an elf? How do I feel about elves? Are they good or are they bad? And there is a, it's really quite confusing. If you think about what you've been inspired to, inspired by and how you, you understand elves, you think about it in contemporary literature. So um, Tolkien's elves, they're, they're, they're good generally, aren't they? They're wise, they're noble, they're immortal. So some have argued that this is, he was very, very, um, devout Catholic and whether he was actually trying to imagine what the earth would have been like before, after, if there hadn't have been the fall, if, if this was like the purest example of what humanity could have been. But anyway, you can't get away from the fact of how clever and wise and noble and um, ageless and attractive and sort of wonderful they are. Um, Terry Pratchett, another source of elves, James, for me, certainly... Um, you think I was reading uh, The Hobbit when I was when I was a kid, and then when I was a teenager, reading Terry Pratchett, and his elves are different. They're really, really naughty. They're distinguished by their by their naughtiness and and their threat that they they pose to Discworld. Um, and then um, I suppose that the next stage in my elf life of, of reading stories is when I had kids and I read J.K. Rowling, where you've got another type of elf. You've got Dobby, uh, which is a, a completely different sort of thing, quite subservient and has various uh, aspects to uh, Dobby being this house elf, which are certainly drawn from Germanic myth all to do with giving the giving of gifts so you end up with three extremely different types of elves you've got tolkien's you've got pratchett's and you've got jk rowling's uh, and as you were mentioning there actually they, they've all kind of drawn on the creation of their elves from history um but that ambiguity of what an elf is is very much matched in history so whether it's in the icelandic texts or in um anglo-saxon words and you mentioned a couple there there are um, others we've got some, some wonderful ones um, alfred itself meaning elf wisdom um Helfbot, meaning elf bright elf noth meaning elf valor these are all pretty good and positive things uh, but at the same time there are a number of of um other words which have exist which exist um in anglo-saxon which definitely link uh elves to 
um, bad luck to harmful magic to sickness and to nightmares in particularly. Um, there are other examples as well in Romanian beliefs uh, and also in Scandinavian folklore. So there's a there's a real mix, a real ambiguity about what exactly an elf is, James. And it's it's represented as, as uh, clearly in the original historical sources as it is in modern literature. Oh, lovely. Let me take you, let me take you from there and just explore some of those Scandinavian origins, because I think they're fascinating. And I think, Sam, one of the interesting things to think about is how those ideas about elves formulate in Scandinavia and then move over to North America by migration. And what's interesting in the Scandinavian uh, version, origin of elves, is the is the way in which they are associated with supernatural figures connected to the farm and their farm guardians, so the Tompton uh, are these sort of farm guardians, and they're very similar to the British brownie or dobby or hob. Uh, Tompter means homestead man, for example. And these creatures, these mythical creatures, are associated with the winter solstice and the Christmas season. And over time, they become associated with St Nicholas uh, in Sweden. So we all know St St Nicholas as the sort of precursor to Father Christmas. But you know, prior to St Nicholas in Sweden, uh, the gifts were given out by the Yule Goat, would you believe? And it's not <laughs> until the last decade of the 19th century that St Nicholas sort of you know, takes over, transplants the, the goat uh, and basically becomes associated with Christmas and that's when he gets associated with the the elves. Um, but before that, the these elves are also associated with the, the, the Yule goat and they often accompany him and the pair of them sort of appear on Christmas Eve, knocking on doors, giving out presents. Um, and then... That tradition uh, gets sort of Disneyfied and commercialised, and then what we see is the is Santa's little helpers become much more well established in the literature of the United States, in particular. And one of the first people to mention uh, Christmas elves was Louisa May Olcott in her book uh, Christmas Elves, which was finished in 1855. Um, we know this because she refers to it in her journal uh, with the phrase, finished fairy book in September, and October May illustrated my book and tales called Christmas Elves, better than flower fables, now I must try to sell it. And it seems that there, although she had a manuscript for this, a publisher was never found. So this is a, a, a book that had never saw the light of, of day in, the, in printed form. But then there are various other examples of Santa's elves be, cropping up in, in literature. Now, well, the, the next um, episode that we see is in 1857 in Harper's Weekly, in a poem called The Wonders of Santa Claus. Uh, and I just want to read you a little extract from this. Beyond the ocean, many a mile and many a year ago, there lived a wonderful queer old men in a wonderful house of snow. 
and every little boy and girl as Christmas eves arrive, no doubt will be very glad to hear the old man is still alive. In his house upon the top of a hill, and almost out of sight, he keeps a great many elves at work, all working with all their might, to make a million of pretty things, cake, sugar, plums and toys, to fill the stockings hung up, you know, by the little girls and boys. It would be a capital treat, be sure, a glimpse of his wondrous shop. But the queer old man, when a stranger comes, orders every elf to stop, and the house and work and workmen all instantly take a twist, and just you may think you are there, they are off in a frosty mist. And then in 1876, Louisa May Alcott returns to writing about Santa's elves. Having failed to publish her earlier book, she writes a poem entitled Merry Christmas, and I just want to read you a couple of lines from this. In the rush of early morning, when the red burns through the grey, and the wintry world lies waiting for the glory of the day, then we hear a fitful rustling just without upon the stair, see two small white phantoms coming catch the gleam of sunny air. Are they Christmas fairies stealing rows of little socks to fill? Are they angels floating hither with their message of goodwill? What sweet spell are these elves weaving as their larks they chirp and sing? Are these palms of peace from heaven that these lovely spirits bring? Rosy feet upon the threshold, eager faces peeping through, with the first red ray of sunshine chanting cherubs come in view. Mistletoe and gleaming holly, symbols of a blessed day, in their chubby hands they carry, streaming all along the way. Well, we know them never weary of this innocent surprise, waiting, watching, listening always, with full hearts and tender eyes, while our little household angels, white and golden in the sun, greet us with their sweet old welcome. Merry Christmas, everyone. So there we are, Sam. Some... Some knowledge uh, for you all about Christmas elves. You, uh, t uh, let's talk about the elf on the shelf. Oh, go on then. I've got issues with the elf on the shelf. I, I, so, I know very little about the elf on the shelf, except that I've seen it all over the place and I have rejected it as far too commercial. Right, so that's interesting. Right, First up, first up it's new. Okay, It's a new Christmas tradition. Uh, and it hasn't certainly wasn't around when I was a kid. It's it's fairly new. It's been around, I suppose, in the last five years, maybe less than that, uh, that actually it's really started to happen. So the principle behind this, as far as I understand it, is that there is an elf that you put somewhere like a shelf and you move it around every day. And your children, you tell your children that the elf is watching them and that if there is any bad behaviour involved... The elf will then report back to Father Christmas, who will uh, take that into consideration when deciding on whether you've been naughty or nice, and therefore will decide whether or not to have your uh, have any presents. So, uh, do you, did you know that side of it, James? I did know that side of it, and I thought that was terrible. It is terrible, isn't it? It, it basically <laughs> it encourages children. To, just stop and think about it. It encourages children to live with surveillance yes. and to, to be happy with surveillance, and it also teaches them that um, good behaviour 
But the behaviour is linked with some non-specific reward far in the future, which may or may not come. So what it actually is, is it's the threat of having a reward taken away. So it's the opposite of doing something good and being rewarded for it quickly. Uh, like in the way you might train a dog, but you know, the uh, you know, do sit down, sit down, you give them a sweetie, absolutely fine. Um, but kids are a bit like that as well. I wouldn't, I am a parent, but I wouldn't say I'm an expert on parenting. But certainly, uh, rewarding children spontaneously for doing something good is a much better way than threatening them to take something away if they don't do something good. And that's entirely what the elf on the shelf is. It's also, um, before I get off my very high elf horse here, um. It's all part of um, what I call the big lie, James, which um, uh, is remarkably similar to what's going on in America at the minute. But just bear with me. Um, the, the big Santa lie. OK, so... so <gasps> that Sam Sa- Willis, that needed to come with a warning. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's good. And this is, this is really important, I think, because it is... Um, we're historians, right? And we need to encourage... Both creative thinking, but also critical thinking, okay? <laughs> you you have to question stuff. And if you encourage uh, people to believe in things without questioning it at all, you just believe in it just because it is so, that's profoundly ahistorical. And what you need to be doing is encouraging people to question it. And actually, uh, you know, I'd be hugely proud if, if a four-year-old, five-year-old said, well, um, hang on a minute... Maybe it's not possible that a man in a giant sleigh can go all around the world delivering people's presents. So anyway, this all comes down to being able to exercise your imagination within a certain kind of structure. And to exercise your imagination, you have to have a starting point that something isn't true, right? And therefore, you can then pretend that it is true for a brief amount of time. It's like playing in the garden if you're watching Star Wars or whatever. You know there are no... I mean, the kids know that there are not, uh, you know, huge spaceships in the sky and people living on different planets. But you can go into the garden and you can pretend that once you've established the fact that they don't... It doesn't happen, right? Same with Christmas. And so surely the most healthy thing to do is to say, of course... Uh, the elf is not going to spy on you and it's not going to report back to Santa and Santa can't deliver lots of toys and he probably won't fit down the chimney and we live in an apartment block and hasn't got a chimney anyway, blah, blah, blah. However, on this given day, we are going to pretend that that is the case. Uh, and I think that's that's a kind of a more healthy way of doing it. Anyway, it all links to the a really interesting history of, um, of beliefs and and how and when and where people actually believe in things. And we, we talked a lot about um, the Vikings and the Norwe- uh, Nordic traditions. I mean, Iceland in particular, they have uh, a huge belief in elves and hidden people. And there's been recent studies done um, showing that actually there are only something like... Uh, it's only a handful of people in Iceland actually believe that these elves exist, that these hidden people exist. But that number would have changed over time. Um, and it's exactly the same thing, whatever, whatever you were talking about in terms of myths and legends, that the, 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 the belief in something actually existing over time will fundamentally change. And you can apply that to religion as well. You can apply that to anything that requires some measure of faith um, to believe in. Uh, which has, of course, its own history. So you can plot um, belief 
in things that do or do not exist. And there are some wonderful accounts of people genuinely believing um, that elves or, or, or whatever it might be have had something to do. I came across a wonderful example from 1950s uh, in America. It's in the Journal of American Folklore. I won't read the whole thing out for you now. It's too long. But fair to say there's a bit of chaos going on inside um, inside a barn and it is this is the late 19th century and it is genuinely put down to a, the, the grandmother puts it down to the possibility of there being uh, a malicious creatures at work causing trouble within the barn that was 1950s america and whether she was doing it tongue-in-cheek telling her children who knows or whether it was a a, a true belief but um it, it stands to to make the point that um we may question or believe in the elf on the shelf and in Santa, but there's a much broader history here of believing in things which would require faith to believe in. Excellent, Sam Willis. Excellent. Yeah, I think that that whole sort of whole world of superstition, superstition yeah. um, is is a fascinating one. Um, it makes me think of Keith Thomas's Religion of the Decline of Magic, which is basically a, a book about the Reformation, but also and popular religion but also showing all these sort of beliefs that people had that existed coexisted side by side christianity um so i think that yeah that's a really fascinating way of looking at that it strikes me that the the elf on the shelf is actually aping a tradition already very much in place about the naughty list you know, and the good or bad children which parents use in order to control their children um, more broadly. Um, it's literally like the Stasi. It is. <laughs> if you, it is. If you, if, you don't, if you remove the fact there's a cuddly green elf and there is a list of good or bad, it, you could be in, uh, you know, revolutionary Russia, uh, French Revolution, you could be in East Germany, um, all of these dictatorial regimes who are spying on you and they are making up lists. Yes, uh, uh, but what we have here is an elf doing it <laughs> in a very sinister way. Well, I want to end with uh, some of my Christmas reading that I've been doing, Santaland Diaries by David Sedaris, and it's a collection of stories. I've talked to you about it in previous episodes. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about it when I talk about when we do our next episode, which is on babies. Um, and the first chapter is Santaland Diaries, which is it gives its title to its name to the title of the book and it's basically about David Sedaris who's a very funny American writer uh, a time when he's in his early 30s he's 33 years old and he goes for an interview at Macy's a big department store in New York think of it a bit like the the department store that the film Elf is based in with Zoe Deschanel and and anyway, he goes along, he has this interview, and it's all about his experiences of it. And I'm just going to read you a couple of extracts here. The woman at Macy's asked, Would you be interested in full-time elf or evening and weekend elf? I said, full-time elf. I have an appointment next Wednesday at noon. I am a 33-year-old man applying for a job as an elf. I often see people on the streets dressed as objects and handing out leaflets. I tend to avoid leaflets, but it breaks my heart to see a grown man dressed as a taco. So if there is a costume involved, I tend not only to accept the leaflet, but also to accept it graciously, saying, thank you so much, and thinking, you poor, pathetic son of a bitch. I don't know what you've done, but I hope I never catch it. 
This afternoon on Lexington Avenue, I accepted a leaflet from a man dressed as a camcorder. Hot dog, peanuts, tacos, video cameras. These things make me sad because they just don't fit on the streets. In a parade, maybe, but not on the streets. I figure that at least as an elf, I will have a place. I'll be at Santa's village with all the other elves. We will reside in a fluffy wonderland, survived by candy canes and gingerbread shacks. I won't be quite as sad as standing on some street corner dressed as a French fry. I'm trying to look on the bright side. I arrived in New York three weeks ago with high hopes, hopes that have been challenged. In my imagination, I'd go straight from Penn Station to the offices of One Life to Live, where I would drop off my bags and spruce up before heading off for drinks with Cord Roberts and Victoria Buchanan, the show's greatest stars. We'd sit in a plush booth in a, at a Tony cocktail lounge where my new celebrity friends would lift their frosty glasses in my direction and say, A toast to David Sedaris, the best writer this show has ever had he then goes on describing what it is like the kind of training that you have as a to be an elf we were given a lecture by the chief of security who told us that macy's herald square suffers millions of dollars worth of employee theft per year as a result the store treats its employees the way one might treat a felon with a long criminal record Cash rewards are offered for turning people in, and our bags are searched every time we leave the store. We were then shown videotapes in which supposed former employees hang their heads and rue the day they ever thought to steal that leather jacket. The actors faced the camera to explain how their arrests had ruined their friendships, family life, and ultimately their future. One fellow stared at his hands and sighed. There's no way I'm going to be admitted to law school now. Not now. Not after what I've done. No, no way. He paused and shook his head of the unpleasant memory. Oh, man. Not after this. No way. And so it goes on, describing all of these all of these different things. Um, in the afternoon, we were given a tour of Santa Land, which really is something. It's beautiful. A real wonderland with 10,000 sparkling lights, false snow, train sets, bridges, decorated trees, mechanical penguins and bears, and really tall candy canes. One enters and travels through a maze, a path which takes you from one festive environment to another. The path ends at the magic tree. The tree is supposed to resemble a complex system of roots, but actually looks like a scale model of the human intestinal tract. Once you pass the magic tree, the light dims and an elf guides you to Santa's house. The houses are cosy and intimate, clean, blah, 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 blah. We travelled the path a second time and were given the code names for the various posts, such as the Vomit Corner, a mirrored <laughs> wall near the magic tree where nauseous children tend to surrender the contents of their stomachs. When someone vomits, the nearest elf is supposed to yell, Vamoose! Which is the name of the janitorial project product used by the store, presumably to clean up the child vomit. 
And so it goes on and on and on. I won't spoil any more. Um, go out, get a copy of this book, because it is excellent. You will not regret it. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, well, there you are, guys. There's uh, some wonderful history of elves. Elves and elves. And uh, the way you can think about them, but get rid of that elf on the shelf. It's, uh, it's evil. It's a bad thing to have. Um if you want to find out what's coming next, uh, I, I, I'll tell you what's coming next. We're going to do a history of babies, which is about as Christmassy as you can get. Uh, but anyway, whatever else we're doing, do follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you like maritime and naval history in the sea, do please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod on Twitter. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so check us out there become friends uh, we also have a website historiesoftheunexpected.com with all sorts of things that we've been doing and you can get little essays on related topics to all the episodes of our podcasts and if you would like to help out and support what we're trying to do then head over to Patreon and become a patron of Histories of the Unexpected anything that you can give to support us uh, is very gratefully received but meanwhile uh, hopefully you're enjoying uh, a festive season yes I think we're all we all are let's let's carry on enjoying it we'll be back again with you soon guys cheerio bye guys happy Christmas even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.